Hey, everybody. You are listening to the No Shortage of Questions podcast. We thank you for listening. I am Nick, enjoying the sunshine in Texas, a pastor in South Lake, Texas, and I am joined by my buddy Andy in Minnesota. Andy, how are you doing today? Hey, Nick, doing awesome. The snow is melting here for a couple of days, so it's a beautiful and sunny. Fantastic. Well, last week we talked, you were on your way out the door to a conference in, was it sunny San Diego? Is that right? Yeah, I was in sunny San Diego and uh, wandering around, taking naps in the sun, wandering around without a coat on, which for a Minnesotan this time of year is pretty unique. Nice. How was the, how was the, uh, uh, the conference? Did you enjoy your time? Yeah, you know, it was good. A lot of really capable, talented people. Uh, which I would expect, and uh, yeah, it was pretty good. It was the Church Vitality Conference. The title cracked me up a little bit, a bunch of Lutherans getting together saying, yeah, let's be vital. <laughs> so <laughs> let's be vital. So, but man, I'm all in favor of vitality, and people, however they define it, anxious to tackle that one. And uh, it was pretty good. A lot of talented people. I was in the Anchor Church track cohort, which is about how do churches come together to cooperate and support one another rather than being in competition. And by that, I mean, you know, churches are the same denominational group, same thought, uh, ELCA in our case. How do they come together and how do they work together to move the ball forward instead of a being in competition. So, Nick, any questions on that? Thoughts? I was actually at that same conference about a year and a half ago, and so getting churches working together is always, I think, a good thing. But I think you run into issues there where you know people don't want to give up control and people don't want to give up their history, and so that, you know, in some ways that can be a, a burden or a challenge, but uh, good stuff. So, well, I'm glad you went. So now we've both been there, and we can both uh, we can both cross it off our list to say that yes, we have been to the church. <laughs> we should we should put that on our podcast. Both both hosts have been to the Church Vitality Conference. Yes, we're Church Vitality alumni. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. A bunch of these people, you know, a lot of them are young or new to the ministry, and they said, "Hey, have you been to this conference before?" Yeah, I said, "Yeah, it was August of '96. I went through training." <laughs> they were like. Okay. It's it's actually changed quite a bit. August of 96, I was getting ready for my first year on the varsity football team as a junior at Lutheran High School North in Michigan. While you were there, I was running. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's great. You were running, eh? Yeah, I was uh, learning how to be a mission developer, learning how to do ministry. What What's interesting, though, on that topic, that what's really changed is that In my day, there was a one-size-fits-all. You knock on doors. The number of people that will visit your church is determined by the number of doors that you knock on. And the number of people that stick depend on how directly focused on your target audience uh, your worship expression would be and how good you were at connecting, integrating, assimilating people. And I'm still for every form of outreach, but what was interesting is they basically admitted that that model no longer works, and they are uh, considerably more contextually specific to use some of the lingo. So there we go. Interesting. Well, I think that's going to be part of the first question that we ask. So so let's go right into it. We are in Mark chapter 4 today. Starting at verse 3, Jesus says, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly 
because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still, other fell on other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. So that is Mark chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. So, should scattering seed be the primary focus of the church? How does the church scatter seed? Is it working? And then just a kind of follow-up question to what you were just talking about. How has scattering seed changed over time for the church? Is there new things that we can be doing? What do you think, Andy? Well, the first question is, should scattering seed be the primary focus of the church? Yeah, I mean, that is our primary, that is our only unique mission, which is uh, evangelism, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, uh, reaching people uh, for the kingdom. I mean, that is our primary unique uh, mission. I mean, no other organization, no other group has that particular mission. That's what we're called to do. And in this particular parable, a farmer, who's obviously Jesus, is out sowing seed, and we are called to sow seed in that same way. So yes, it should be the primary focus of the church. And I think that a lot of times when that's lost in churches, you know, we don't need to reach people. We're fine the way we are. Why do we need more people? More people is only going to wreck our community as we are. That's a, a real sign of, of selfishness. The community is not about you. Community is about the other. We exist for the benefit of our non-members. We exist for people outside of us. Our mission is to reach new people. So if our if the way we do that mission is everything about us, what what do we want? I mean, we're not really... Uh, focusing on what our mission is. But how does the church scatter seed? I think that it scatters seed through any of the purposes that the church serves. I mean, evangelism, proclaiming the good news of God, worship, connecting with Christ, uh, fellowship, which is to know and be known, koinonia, to be in tight community, a discipleship to grow spiritually as followers of Jesus Christ, and then ministry to, you know, basically be served by serving to express our God-given giftedness uh, in service to our world. I think, you know, those don't change, and it's through each of those that, that you know, we're scattering seed. Those are some of the ways that the church scatters seed. But is it working or not? I mean, depends on how you want to measure it. Uh, one of the things that I think at the conference we were at that was kind of missing was metrics for are you succeeding or not. And I think that we don't want to talk about metrics today in the church because pretty much across the board, the numbers are going down. The Wall Street Journal actually had an article, uh, I think it was in the last week, I think it was last Thursday, that's gotten a lot of press that was kind of rebutting the notion that secular society is moving away from the church. It actually said, no, there are particular quadrants in Christianity that are growing like mad, and it's only the main line that is really declining. Uh, but is it working? Well, no. If numbers are going down, it's not necessarily working. But uh, uh, my take on it all is that the methodology, methodologies of how we do church must always be open to change, but the message must never change. So we're always sowing seed. We always need to be thinking about how can we sow seed? How can we plant the seed of the gospel? But how we're going to do it is change. It's going to change. When I was just coming into ministry, you know, 
10, 20 years earlier, busing ministry had been the big thing. Send buses into communities, pick up kids for Sunday school, just like on Sunday, and take them. And that was a huge strategy in a lot of different kinds of churches. And uh, Wednesday night has become a big strategy now, and how do you reach youth? I mean, Lutherans have always kind of done this, but Wednesday evening programs, there are lots and lots of families that participate in a church on Wednesday nights, but don't on Sunday, which is just fascinating to me. Nick? Should scattering seed be the primary focus of the church? Well, I would say so. Uh, to me, it is. And when when you look at a church today, is it often obvious to whoever the observer is that the church that scattering seed is the most important focus of the church i would say that's rare i would say that's rare but i think it should be we talk about all the different things that the church is doing all the different things that congregations do how much how much are we doing to scatter seeds and how much are we doing for other purposes uh I, somebody said it once i don't remember who it was or i'd give them credit but it's are you a great commission church where you go and proclaim the gospel or you are or are you a great commandment church where you go and love your neighbor with the assumption that you can't be both that you you either are a good great commission church or you're a good great commandment church or quite frankly there's probably churches that aren't very good at either but uh, where you are you going to go out and are you going to proclaim the gospel and are you going to go out and try and plant seeds all over? Or are you going to go out and be a great commandment church and just do do your best to, to love those who come to you, those who are with you? And, and I think when I heard that, I said, well, my church is going to do both. And as I look back over time, I don't think that I don't think that we've been able to do both. I, I don't think you can focus on both. I think you have to focus on one or the other. And it's the, the Great Commission is so important. It's so important to the, the future of the church that I think it needs to be the primary focus of the church. And the churches that are growing, it is their primary focus. Uh, and so how has Scattering Seed changed over time for the church? Well, as you said, it used to be go out and knock on doors. And I'm really glad I'm not a mission developer 30, 40 years ago, because I would be so uncomfortable knocking on people's doors. People just don't answer the doors anyway. If you come to my, if you come and knock on my door, you better have something from Amazon or be selling Girl Scout cookies, because I'm not comfortable answering that. I, people aren't just, it just doesn't happen anymore. I would say that the easiest way to scatter seed now uh, is to meet people one-on-one. And the way to do that, I think, I, I just recently, I've been thinking about this. What would it look like if every pastor spent one day a week driving for Uber? People used to have deep conversations with their bartenders. Well, I think the Uber driver is the new bartender. And so I thought about what what would it look like to drive for Uber for a day? I mean, not, not so much for the money, but just for the connections, just to meet people in the community and to have conversations uh, and to to let people know that, hey, there's a there's a church in your community and, you know, we worship on Sunday mornings at such and such a time. And, you know, we we are a lot of people who are struggling with the things that you're struggling with. And, and just to have those an opportunity to have those conversations, uh, I think it could be a powerful, a powerful time, a powerful way to get to know people, uh, because the way that we have been doing it hasn't worked that, so, you know, the things we're trying now are Facebook advertisements and stuff like that. And and I just don't know how. Have you ever shopped or bought anything that you've seen on Facebook? I know I don't think I have, uh, so I I don't I don't know how we can better scatter seeds. But I think it's something we really need to focus on. You know, on the knocking on doors thing, I always totally understood that because it came out of the 1950s, 60s culture where people had front porches, and people were looking uh, to enter into community, and people were. Uh, in, uh, you know, really open to the opportunity of entering into community with people. And 
One of the cultural metaphors that describes the change in culture is the move from front porches, front decks, to back decks. Nobody puts a front porch really on their house anymore that they expect to spend a lot of time on, sitting on, watching people walk down the street. Mostly all of the decks or porches are in the back. It's it's the move from a public setting to a kind of a private, you know, my space, my time, and people don't want anybody knocking on their door, especially if they weren't invited. And so they would send us out into the midst of that. I had doors slammed on me, people that clearly wanted nothing to do with me. People were mostly polite. So, yes, the way that we scatter seed clearly has to change uh, from that, and it has already. Methodologies must change. But it was interesting, you know, the one-on-one, if we could train all of our people to have very clearly articulated expressions of the gospel, that would be very helpful. The difficulty with that is that people are in different places. People don't always feel comfortable talking about religion. You were talking about Uber. I uh, had my first Uber ride this past week. I'd never used Uber before. And sure enough, my uh, Uber driver was an immigrant who was a communist and like told me that within a couple of minutes of the conversation it was fascinating and i had this great conversation with him but it was really kind of really hard to get past he kept saying communism was great <laughs> so uh, the question about i was how do i how do i move that toward an expression of the gospel and uh, so did you remind did you remind him that this is the 40th anniversary of the us beating russia in the olympics <laughs> Oh, I should have. I don't know why I didn't mention that on Sunday. I remember I remember that day, talking about hockey that day at church. And wow. So, okay. Well, let's move on, uh, unless you have more. Uh, verse 13, Then Jesus said to the disciples, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown out on the rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it an unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So, Nick, the hard ground, Satan takes away the word. Uh, How does Satan take it away? And uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I find uh, I find that in, in you know I, I, we're gonna so we're gonna break these down and we're gonna talk about each one. So the first one, how does Satan take away the word? Satan takes it away in a couple different ways. I would say first and foremost, you can see you can see Satan working in the church. You can see Satan working in the church in ways that uh, hurt people. In ways that hurt people, you look at you know just some of the sex scandals. Uh, you know how Satan can work through those things. Uh, and then I, I think also Satan would work in the uh, in the hearts of those who are in the congregation. I, I think I think far too often people get offended by things that really aren't intended to offend. They, uh, you know, I think we we are in a culture today where it's easy to get offended and and it's easy to take things personally that aren't meant to be. It's easy to hear someone say something and and just say, well, I, that that person, you know, label that person as one thing and and never want to associate with them ever uh, ever again. And so, people might get offended at what the church does or what the church says, 
and walk away. And so I think Satan works in that way. I think, I think Satan part of part of what Satan does is tries to make the gospel irrelevant. Uh, tries to make people believe that I don't need to be forgiven. I don't need to be saved. I don't need anyone to die for me. I don't, you know, I, I just don't need it. What God is offering, I don't need. And so, you know, I just, I think Satan, that Satan works in that way. So, you know, the, the word of God comes and Satan just kind of says, ah, that does, won't make any difference in your life. I think Satan works at the, the people who say that religion is only for weak-minded people. Religion is only for people who, who need to, uh, who need to believe in God, for, for people who need to believe that something comes after this life, for people who deny the truth of science and uh, and and then you know I think Satan works in the at times through the the Christians who uh, you know when when Christians are in the media often they're portrayed as coming across as hateful and, and as as proclaiming a Christ that that Andy I would say you and I you know wouldn't wouldn't believe in that you and I wouldn't affirm and so you know I, I that's kind of where I see Satan working in this is trying to trying to take this gospel message trying to take this good news trying to distort it so that it, so that it doesn't sound like good news, uh, trying to make others say, eh, I just don't need it. It doesn't make sense to me. It's for people who aren't as intellectually uh, on my level. Uh, and then, you know, for putting people in positions to proclaim that good news and people abusing those positions. Um, any thoughts, Andy? Does Satan make it irrelevant to them? Why is it irrelevant? And how does Satan take it away? Could be any number of things. Uh, but that that happens. That I mean, I mean, that's what I mean. Evil is always trying to uh, convince us that grace is not real, that grace is not for us, that we're not deserving, and that we need to find our other, find another way, earn our own way. You you, you ask the question, irrelevant and relevance. That's one of the major uh, stumbling blocks for people as to their involvement in a church is it was one of the top four back when I was a mission developer. It's irrelevant to my life. Show me how it's irrelevant. And uh, I, I think that probably there are two answers to that. Number one, there is nothing more relevant to your life than uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And secondly, sometimes it's the fault of the preacher if it comes across as, as irrelevant. Nick? Yeah, I uh, was talking to a friend of mine about this a couple years ago. Even if we get to the end of life and figured out that we were wrong, that what we believed in isn't true, I still believe this was a better way to live. There's the relevant pieces. Even if you don't believe this is true, clearly this is a better way to live. It's better. It's better to be in relationship with people. It's better to be part of a community. It's you know, it's just a better way to live. There's there's more joy in it than there is in in personal satisfaction, living a life of greed, living a life of of selfishness. It, it, I just think it's a better way to live. Yeah, that's a classic uh, proposition in Pascal's Pensées, which was one of the textbooks that we read in uh, Christian history, which is, you know, that's one of the arguments for Christianity that, yeah, you know, regardless, if you want, you can get stuck in truth, and we all believe that, I do at least, that it's all very true, but even if not, show me a better way to live, and that's, you know, in its own, in its own way, an argument for truth. So, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll go to the next uh, the next thing Jesus said. So he said the rocky ground. Uh, others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. So some some people are attracted to Christianity, but just on the surface, they just they only stay a short period of time. I, I don't. Andy, does this happen at your church where somebody will visit and then right away they want to join? Right away they want to get involved. 
And then, and so they do, and a month a month later, they're gone, and you never see them again. Yeah, absolutely. They're all fired up, and then the next thing comes along, and they're gone. So the question then is, is Christianity an all-or-nothing thing? Do you have to be 100% in, uh, or what is, what is Jesus trying to say here? You know, I tend to blame the church often when that sort of situation happens. Maybe that's unfair, but I think it comes down to this. Do churches really help people integrate well? And number two, is their experience of the gospel really life-changing? I mean, someone can come in and really like the music. Oh, the music's awesome. But if that's it, we're probably not going to see them very long. Uh, You know, I heard a, we did a staff training on how people integrate. And one of the uh, axioms was that uh, productions don't stick, relationships stick. In other words, you can have the most incredible production. Let's assume that it's a worship service, could be something else. But ultimately, they say, hey, that was great. But, you know, then they they fly away, go to the next production. But it's relationships that really help people stick in the church. And so is our experience in the church life-changing? Nick? Yeah, I uh, had a very similar conversation last week with one of our newer members who joined. We started visiting a couple years ago, and we'd see him maybe once a month. Uh, and then he retired, and he uh, his family joined, and we got him involved uh, on the property committee, and uh, got him involved doing other things, playing golf, and and in our bowling league. And he was sitting in my office last week, and he said, "You know, I, my whole life I've always felt like you know I've been a member at a church, but I haven't really you know it, I haven't really ever been involved in a church or felt like part of a church. But here, this is the first time in my life where I wouldn't." I wouldn't even consider missing a Sunday. It's like I I wouldn't know what to do with my week if I did if I didn't have weren't wasn't here on Sunday and and I think well wow, that's that's such a beautiful story that's that's exactly what we're trying to do and how can we do that for others how can we make sure that everyone is integrated and everyone feels like a part of the community everyone feels connected uh, I think that's one of the things that one of the challenges for churches I. I used to go and, and present at some of these conferences, uh, the mission developer conferences. And, and one of the things I would say is the church needs to be really good at scattering seeds. The church needs to be really good at inviting people so that new people will come. But before you do that, you need to make sure that if new visitors do come to your church, that your church is ready for visitors because you can get all the new visitors you want. But if they come to your church and you're not ready for them, they're not coming back. And so the first step is making sure that if a new visitor walks in your door, that they feel welcomed, that they're not, you know, that, that, that they're not ignored. But on the other hand, they're not your welcoming group is not overly enthusiastic and makes them feel uncomfortable that way. Uh, and so it's a it's got to be a good blend of welcoming and we're glad you're here, uh, but we're not going to be too aggressive and we're not going to be in your face. Uh, I think um, so. But uh, back to this, the rocky ground, uh, the people are attracted to Christianity, but just on the surface. So does Christianity need to be an all or nothing thing? I, I would say for Jesus, yes. <laughs> you know, Jesus didn't call people to be you know Christians one day a week. Jesus called people to leave everything behind and follow him. And so I think, yes, I think it needs to be a part of everything we do. It's easy to look at our, to look at our week or look at our life and kind of 
like make like a pie chart of what's important, a pie chart of what we're going to focus on. And, you know, church could be this 25 percent and work could be this 50 percent and family could be. But I think, you know, I, I think our, our faith, our Christianity, you know, following Jesus is not a piece of the pie. It is the whole it influences everything we do within the pie. You know, our faith is the lens through which we see the pie. It's the lens through which we see life. And it needs to be a part of everything we do. Uh, and now all the decisions we make, all the things we say, uh, it it has to influence everything. So yeah, I would say it it is an all or nothing thing. Uh, that's that's the goal anyway of discipleship. That's what Jesus is calling us to. I wouldn't say we're all there, but I think we should all uh, all understand what what the call of discipleship is and work towards towards getting there. Andy, yeah, no, you're dead on. It is all or nothing. There there is no part way. Uh, moving that direction though is the path of discipleship. The process of that. Also, you're you're dead on on are we prepared to uh, receive people, and are we welcoming? So, if we move on to the next verse, eighteen. Still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word making it unfruitful. So the thorny ground, it's easy to get so busy with life that there's just not enough time left in the week or day or basically in our own bandwidth for Christ, for Christianity. So I don't is Nick, is it a time issue? Would people benefit with more time? I don't necessarily think that's the case. And if not, what is it? What's your take on that? Well, I think the thing we say, the excuse we make, is that it's a time issue. But the reality is, it's not that people don't have enough time. We all have the same amount of time in a day. We all have the same amount of time in a week. But it's how we choose to spend our time. I, I think we need to be honest. And we just need to say, yeah, I we're not able to come. We're not able to participate because of sports, because of whatever. Uh, it's not that you don't have enough time for church. It's that you've chosen to spend your time doing something else. You know, and for a season of life, that may be the appropriate thing to do for your family. But I would say that, you know, you need to figure out a way to make faith an important part of whatever it is that you're doing. And so if you're busy on Saturdays and Sundays, is there some other way that you can be a part of a, a part of a church? It doesn't, you know, if, if you're going to a church and they don't have stuff midweek, well, you know, find one that does just, but I think it's important if we, if you're raising kids and your sports on the weekends are too, you know, that you're too busy, you don't have time that I think it's, it's certainly, uh, certainly has to be part of what you're trying to do with your kids. And so to make time, everyone is busy. Everyone can come with with an excuse to miss church. Everyone can come with an excuse to, to, you know, with, with something else to do. But I think it's important that we, we choose to, to make time. I'm not one of those guys who says you have to go to church to be uh, close to God. I think it really helps. You know, I think maybe there's some people who, who can do it on their own or who can do it in small groups or can do it in house churches or whatever. Uh, but I just think it's important that everyone figures out what that looks like for them to take the time to connect with God in ways that, you know, you just don't have the time to during the rest of the week. And so I would say that, you know, it's important that we take this time and that we, that we practice Going back to, I think, what we talked about last week, Mr. Rogers, this idea of practicing and, and doing our best to, to figure out what it means to be a Christian and to, to practice being kind because it doesn't, it doesn't come natural to most of us. And to learn, uh, to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to take the time to read the Bible and to pray and to, uh, to learn, learn what it means to be a disciple. And I would say just if, you, if we took the time, if we decided to take the time and to dedicate it to our faith, 
uh, we would be more aware of what God is doing around us. We would see see God's presence working all around us. We would we had the the reading yesterday of Moses going up on the mountain to meet God to get the tablet and waiting for God for seven days. And you know, there's there's just no patience anymore. There's no patience. There's part of the life of discipleship is being in the presence of God, whether it's through prayer or worship or whatever, and just being still and and focusing on nothing other than God and waiting for God to make to make clear to you what God is doing in your life and around you. I think I think that's an important part of what it means to be a disciple is to be still and know that God is God. Be still and recognize God working in and around you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am, by the way, one of those. Uh, you have to go to church on Sunday, people. <laughs> I've noticed that about and, you. <laughs> and, that's right. And in the old days, I would have attributed that to rule following. That's kind of my personality, follow the rules. But notice I did say, it's. I think it's a very important part of it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Hebrews talks about, uh, you know, let's not neglect uh, gathering together, which I think is what you're getting at. As to this question, uh, Jesus really gives the answer right there. Which I think is great. The worries of the life of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in, choke the word, so it's not fruitful. Do we want Jesus to be fruitful in our life? Yes, uh, you know I do. Lots of people clearly don't. Well, if you do want it to be fruitful, I mean, we don't let the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things to get in the way of the word. And I think that's really uh, what's going on a lot. And, and you know, we tend to blame people. It's, it's often a shaming sort of approach. But the other side of that is that unless someone has, you know, experienced in the classic language conversion, unless they've experienced Christ as life-changing, unless they're really being compelled and drawn by the work of the Holy Spirit, can you really blame them? A lot of them have tried church, been there, done that. Nothing happened. They didn't have any sort of experience that led them to come back. And uh, so I think that, uh, uh, I mean, helping people experience the gospel uh, is such a absolutely crucial, crucial piece. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I, I would say it's good to go to church. It's always good to be in worship. And if you're, I mean, if you're, if you're not at a church that, that feeds you, then, you know, I would say it's good to find one. But, you know, you, you take one Sunday off, and that could lead to two, that could lead to a month, that could lead to a decade. Uh, and so, you know, I would I would certainly encourage you to to continue to to participate in your local church. I'm not saying that it's not uh, not an important thing, but but you know, there's there's times where I think we all need a Sunday just to just to recover. I mean, just to re- life is hard, and just to recover. So, as I said, you know, when I go on vacation, we're usually driving on Sundays, so we don't. Uh, uh, but it's it's also you know when I come back after missing a week, it's like wow I've really missed this. I can't. I, it's like I had forgotten how much I love this, and so I think that that can be part of it too. Okay, so then to finish this, verse twenty: others like seed sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. So the the good clean soil they hear the word, they accept it, and they bear fruit. It seems to all lead to action. It's uh, accepting and then bearing fruit. So we have a lot of churches that are struggling. Do churches struggle because its members aren't good soil? Now that's that could lead to what you were talking about, the, the shame thing you were just mentioning. What do you think, Andy? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, a nice parallel to soil would be culture. What is the culture of your church, both in regards to how it does life with each other, but also in how it receives new people? 
you already covered this, but are we welcoming the new people? Are we warm to new people? Are we going out and inviting them? The old study says people won't participate won't perceive your church as being warm unless they're greeted four times before the worship service begins. Uh, I've also heard that as four times during their entire visit, a stranger saying hello to them. Um, We had an interesting experience. I mean, the whole culture of inviting, is that there or not? Do you have something that people will invite to? Uh, We were running Alpha last night, and kind of a cool experience. Someone from Alpha invited... uh, Somebody they ran into in the marketplace to come, and, and uh, you know, person seemed like they were having a good experience. We had no idea. Uh, but it was really cool. Somebody sent me a screenshot of this person posting on their Facebook page a picture of the church and talking about what a positive, incredible experience they'd had, uh, you know, just having supper and hanging out and doing community and listening to a talk on faith. Last night, the topic was, Why Did Jesus Die?, and it was really, really cool to see that because we never fully know what sort of experience that uh, people are having, and it's it's really hard to know. And, you know, every longtime church member has said, I ain't greeting somebody new. I did that once, and they'd gone to this church for 30 years, <laughs> and uh, which is pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of getting us off topic a little bit on that. Uh, but, Nick, what are your thoughts? Well, so this is a tough one for me. Do churches struggle because its members aren't good soil? I would say it's easy to make assumptions as to why other churches aren't growing. It's easy to make assumptions as to why why our churches are struggling. It's easy to make assumptions, but I would say that if you go visit these places, you find that there are good, faithful people in most Christian churches around the country. I would say in all Christian churches around the country. I haven't been to all of them, but you know, there's good, faithful people, and they're doing their best. But I think some might be afraid of change and some might be afraid to to give up some power. And so, you know, there might be some of that struggle going on. There's, uh, I think what you said is, is right on where you said culture and soil are, are good, uh, go hand in hand. Uh, I think because there's a lot of places, specifically in the Lutheran Church, where 50, 60, 70 years ago, a church was planted and it grew because the, it met the needs of the community. And over the course of time, the community has changed. Uh, the community has changed. The The demographics of the community has changed. And so, you know, it's easy to, it was easier 50, 60 years ago to, to start a Lutheran church in a community where you had a bunch of Scandinavian immigrants or where you had a bunch of Lutheran immigrants, or, or I'm sorry, German immigrants. But now you notice that those people, though, you know, have sold their houses and they've moved, their families have moved out to the suburbs. And you don't have Scandinavians and, and Germans anymore. And, you know, where we live in Texas, you might have a, a Latino uh, a, or Latina community. And so that culture. And so what has the church done to reach out to them? Or, or you know, you have immigrants from the Philippines or from other places around the world. And so, you know, a church that is in a community now where the members are still members there because, you know, that's where they've always gone to church, but they're driving 20 miles in each day and 20 miles out. And what is the church doing to meet the needs of the, the new community or the community that has formed around it? I think there's, um, I don't think the church has always done a good job with that. And so I think that's a reason why, you know, I wouldn't say that the people there aren't good soil. I think they're open to what the, you know, what God has done for them and what God is doing and they want to do their best. But at the same time, change is hard. So, uh, I don't know. Any, any more thoughts on that, Andy? Yeah, one more. I think that um, the key question here is, who is it for? Who is the church for? Uh, I heard a pastor just yesterday saying that, you know, young churches with young leaders tend to reach young people. 
And it uh, doesn't mean they only reach young people, but they reach. Uh, and so his question was, who is on, who is up front, uh, and what ages are they? And secondly, second thing is the the old axiom is that people show up at church and ask, is there anyone here like me? In other words, are there people that are at the same life sta- stage, same, you know, basically have affinity uh, that they can connect with? Is there anybody here like me? And you know, you're talking about Germans and Scandinavians. Age is just kind of as important. I mean, if, you know, probably somebody in their 20s, unless they have some unique personality thing, aren't going to join up a church that's completely full of 70s and 80-year-olds. And that's not because they think 70s and 80-year-olds are terrible. They're just looking for a community with somebody just like them. And and so, uh, pretty important thing, affinity, people of same life stage and asking, who is this for? Because a lot of churches say, where are the young people? Well, they're doing nothing to try and connect with the young people, and there aren't any young people there, and they're probably not going to reach any young people. So, And also the interesting thing on that, I mean, is the church is still the most segregated institution organization in the, in the world. I mean, it's uh, in the country at least. So we could unpack that further. I mean, Lutheran churches are 98% white. That's one of the things we were talking about last week. So how do we handle that? I mean, because we don't want to be purely, I mean, we're the most white, you know, Caucasian church in the entire country. I mean, nobody tops us on that one. And is that a good thing? Well, not really. And what I was reflecting on as I heard that, my church when I was in Chicago was always 15 to 25% represented by people from a minority background and why was that? Well, it wasn't because we were doing anything in particular to reach them. It was because we. It was probably because of the music and the approach we were using was just different. So, we could go on on that one, Nick. But uh, who is it for? Who are you trying to reach? And how can we best connect them in uh, to God's people in such a way that they have a life-changing, life-giving experience? Our vision statement here is find life. Yeah, I think the majority of times when we say, where are the young people, where are the the fill-in-the-blank, what we're saying is that we want them to come to our church and to worship the way we worship and to do church the way we do church, as long as they don't sit in our seat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Where if we're really serious about attracting anybody, whether, you know, you figure out, well, young families or, you know, people of different uh, backgrounds, then you're going to have to figure out a way to uh, to meet their needs and to figure out what they're looking for. Because they're, uh, it's just, the reality is people are just not going to be interested in doing things the way you're doing them. Bingo. Amen. You know, sp- specifically if you haven't changed in the last 30 or 40 years. So, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to comment on that or if you're just ready to move on. Oh, I have a comment for everything at all times, in all places, unfortunately. But yeah, you're right. My, I love what my predecessor used to ask, which was, uh, what is so compelling about your faith that you're, what are you willing to give up for the faith to reach the 60% unchurched of our county? In other words, um, what he, he was always asking this question in different ways. What, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice to 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 let go of if it's going to help us uh, reach new generations, reach new people. And I think what is so compelling about your faith that you're willing and able to do that? We could go further into that, but it's a nice follow-up. So verse 24, consider carefully what you hear, Jesus continued, with a measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. 
Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. This doesn't really fit egalitarianism and fairness, Nick. Uh, you know, some would say this is prosperity gospel. You know, I don't know if I'd go there. Why would, why would Jesus punish those who have little in this passage? I'm glad you get to take the first shot at this. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thanks, Jesus. Um, so what is Jesus talking about? I, I, you think about all the things in life that you want more of, uh, and, and, and I think it's easy to read it through that lens. What are the things we want more of? We want more money and we want, you know, and so I think this can be misinterpreted to use as the prosperity gospel. But I, I look at first Corinthians 13, verse 13 says, now these three remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I think the greatest gifts that God has given us is faith, hope, and love. And so those are the most important things. Not money, uh, not, you know, not, not about uh, recognition or power or authority, but faith, hope, and love. So if we go back to the parable and uh, Jesus says, well, whoever has will get more. And if you don't have any, well, you're, you know, what little you do have is going to be taken. Uh, you know, it's, are you pursuing faith, hope, and love? If you're pursuing faith, hope, and love, well, you're going to get more faith. You're going to get more hope. And you're going to find that if you choose to be a loving person, more people are going to love you and you're going to have a life full of love. And uh, and so I think you'll get more love. So you'll get more faith, you'll get more hope, you'll get more love. Now, if you have a little faith and you're not, if your faith isn't important to you, if you have a little hope and it's not important to you, if you have a little love and it's not important to you, it's not that you're going to be punished and that's going to be taken away. It's just that if you don't do anything with it, uh, you know, it's going to become less and less important to you. And and at some point you're going to wake up and what little love you had, what little faith or what little hope you had, uh, you know, is, is going to be gone. Not not because Jesus took it away, though, but just because you've ignored it and you've, you haven't done anything with it. And so uh, you're going to find that it's just not something that uh, that that is all that important to you. So, you know, it go, but I think it goes back to the uh, back to the parable that we were just talking. How are you spending your time? What are you pursuing? If you're not spending your time uh, doing things motivated by faith, motivated by hope, motivated by love, if you're doing things that are motivated by uh, excess, if you're doing things that are motivated by greed, if you're doing things that are motivated by getting on top, you know, you're not doing anything to. Um, to sustain these gifts of faith, hope, and love, and so you know, I just think it's it's very important that we that we realize uh, Jesus is calling us to a different kind of life, uh, and so we have to, you know, we have to step away from from the life that uh, it appears that our world is trying to force on us, which is a life of an abundance, a life of excess, a life of self gratification. Andy. Principle of compounding, more brings more, brings more when it's reinvested. Uh, I think that uh, that that was coming to mind. Uh, I mean, you named it Love Grows, and uh, what we're seeing in the words of Jesus from the previous verses is it grows exponentially. And whoever has will be given more, uh, absolutely. I mean, that's just kind of... So it sounds kind of unfair outwardly, whoever has will be given more. I think it's many ways the principle of blessing that uh, blessing brings blessing brings blessing and generosity brings blessing and we don't give in order to receive but we give because God has invited us to give and be generous and you can't outgive God is the old statement so those are my thoughts yeah 
I agree. I agree. I think it, as you said, it's difficult for us to hear this. It's hard for us to hear it and make sense of, but you know, I think if we spend any bit of time thinking about it, it makes total sense. So um, oh, let's just go to the next verse. Uh, so we're going to go verses 26 through 28. Jesus also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or he gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full corner, uh, full kernel in the in the head. So uh, this, the seed is planted and it grows and there's nothing a farmer can do to make it grow. Uh, so are we helpless when it comes to spreading the kingdom? If the spirit gives faith, which is what we believe as Lutherans, how do we participate in the growth of the kingdom? Andy? I don't think that we're necessarily helpless but I do think that we don't have control. And uh, I think that our calling is to proclaim the gospel again and again and again, and that some people will hear it and others will not. And some people are not prepared to hear it at this time, but will be later. And I heard one evangelical say that it takes seven proclamations of the gospel for someone actually to receive it, uh, you know, they might have had uh, some little different understandings of it than I might as a Lutheran, but I think that the what they're getting at is it really, I mean, it needs to be proclaimed many times, proclaimed into people's lives. Uh, so those are sort of my thoughts. We're helpless, but we shouldn't do the opposite of that. Well, it's all God's doing, so there's nothing we can do anyway, so we're not going to do anything. Uh, I mean... I said in an earlier podcast, something I think was from uh, Jim Nestigan way back at Luther Sem, when he said it's 100% God's doing, 100% our response. And also people that have experienced grace want to proclaim grace and ex- proclaim the grace of God. Uh, so if the Spirit gives faith, how do we participate in the growth of the kingdom? Uh, by you know being led by the Spirit, by doing proclamation, by basically being transformed uh, beings as best we can by being really excited about what God is doing. And I think, think that's more organic than it is, uh, you know, uh, or organized and intentional. Nick? Yeah, I, I think it's funny. The You heard an evangelical say it takes seven times for someone to hear that. That sounds like something an evangelical would say to me. Uh, but I think, I think part of it is that it could only take once if that's what the Spirit decides. You know, it could only take once... If uh, if you if you're you know it's somebody you really trust if it's somebody you have a strong relationship with, you know it's it, may, it might be seven times hearing it from a stranger, but if it's a friend, if it's somebody who you've built a relationship with, it you know it, it might only take once, and you never know yeah, what the yeah. spirit is trying to do through you and with you. Uh, you know I I think we partner with the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, and the Spirit puts us in certain places at certain times. And uh, Luke twelve verse twelve, Jesus said, "The Spirit teaches us what to say." You know, if we just trust the spirit and if we follow the spirit and if we go to those difficult, if we go to those places that that are uncomfortable for us, uh, the spirit's going to tell us what to say. And, and Andy, I don't know if you've ever experienced that where you've been in a place and and you thought I am not at all prepared to be in this place and to have this conversation. But all of a sudden you start saying things that you've never said before. And you're like, where did that come from? Because that sounded really smart. And I know I'm not smart enough to come up with that. And I know I haven't had that thought before. But uh, you can see the work of the Spirit in you and through you. And it's really kind of life-giving. It's like, whoa, did that really just have? It's exhilarating. Uh, and But um, I, I, so, so I, as you said, I don't think we're 
helpless. Uh, but I do think, I do think on the flip side of this is that many times we can get in the way of what the Spirit's trying to do. We can get in the way of the gospel and we can make others who are there for a purpose who want to hear it. Uh, we can say the wrong thing and we can do the wrong thing and we can come across in the wrong way and we can really get in the way of what the Spirit's trying to do. Not that the Spirit can't work through that or overcome that, but at times I think uh, it's easy to get in the way of it. Amen. Verse 36 Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and he was and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Uh, interesting note here, Nick. Jesus commands the storm to be quiet. Same words he used when he spoke to a demon in Mark 1. And first century Jews believed that the destructive power of storms was the work of demons. Uh, also, this story is more... And Jesus stopping wind and rain, the disciples who witnessed this now had a sense of fearlessness in their hearts, knowing that Jesus would not allow anything to happen to them. Uh, and so there are storms attacking our church, our nation, and fear is involved in that. Nick, comments on any of that? Yeah, this is one of those I think that many people hold on to as one of their favorite stories, the, the, the power of Jesus to calm the storm the power of Jesus to calm nature, the power of Jesus to step into a situation that is chaos and just say peace and, and speak peace into something that is not peaceful. Uh, I think we certainly would love for Jesus to do that in a number of ways, to step into the midst of a chaotic world, a chaotic nation, a chaotic church, and say, peace, just relax. I am here. Everything's going to be okay. Don't worry, I will not let this. Uh, I will not let this fall apart. Uh, I would say that probably, uh, if you look around, the biggest storm affecting our nation today is division, unwillingness to unwillingness to respect respect each other. I think that's a, a big concern that that I wish Jesus would step into and and say peace. I was watching uh, TV the other night, and they are running political ads all over the country. I assume, but here in Texas, they are. And one of the candidates, their thing was, elect me because I am willing to go and fight the hardest for you. And the idea that we're electing somebody to go fight on our behalf, I mean, it's, I, I was just so taken aback by it. I mean, we're, I, I guess that's what we've been doing, but now we're even using the language. I'm looking for the candidate that says, elect me and I'm willing to go and work with everybody. I'm willing to go and, and speak to everybody and listen to everybody and figure out what is best for our, for our state, for our community. Uh, you know, I, it's so easy just to say, you know, to, I'm here to fight with you. That's what I've been elected to do, to fight with you. To, I, you know, reject, reject your opinions, reject your value. You just, to me, you are just a, a stumbling block. You are just a, a, an obstacle to overcome. Is that what we've become? Where is the person who will stand up and say, you know, I want to work with everybody. I want to value everybody. I want to respect everybody. I want to listen to everybody. And I want to work with everybody. I want to do things that are best for everybody. Yeah, I think that's a a big thing, a big storm right now in our, in our community and in our country. And, and I think a lot of the cause of our problems, certainly that 
is fear. Fear is the main motivator uh, behind so much of what we talk about, so much of our political agenda, so much of the decisions we make as individuals. And anytime we're making a decision based on fear, we're not making a decision based on faith, plain and simple. I just don't think the two are, are congruent at all. So, Andy, what are you thinking? So is that storm, Nick, being caused by demons? I, I would say that's coming from, from Satan. Yeah, probably more so than uh, the comment about the destructive power of storms of nature being the work of demons. Andy, what do you think about storms in the church? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there have always been storms affecting the church. I mean, I'm surrounded on four sides in this room by books, and I love to open up old, old books about the church, because they always begin in the preface talking about things have never been worse than they are now, and the church has never been more threatened, and things have never been as bad, and society has never been on so much of a decline, and it's always funny, because it's like they're talking about uh, days and eras and decades that today we see as kind of this nirvana, you know, and and they're describing it as the worst ever. So we always think we're being attacked. Uh, what are some, I mean, the storms currently attacking the church, our participation, uh, a discipleship we might make a case for, uh, it, depending on your uh, biblical interpretation. People always say the Bible is under attack. kind of depends on your interpretive method. And our nation, I mean, you know, lives uh, are at risk in all kinds of different ways. Uh, and you could connect all of the dots here between the church and the nation. And there are also really, really positive things coming out. Bill Gates had a new book out a couple of years ago talking about all the great things happening in the world. But to get specific on the church, especially in our church, the Lutheran Church, I mean, um, when numbers and dollars are going down, it diminishes the energy and the ability of the church to accomplish mission. And I think that if we want to, you know, go back to where we began, church vitality, we need a plan, and we need massive efforts to uh, reach new people and to, to, you know, disciple them, which includes generosity, uh, toward accomplishing the mission of Jesus Christ. Uh, so those are some of the storms. Uh, those are some of the storms that are happening. And the role of fear in that is, I like a pastor, uh, the comment of a pastor I heard last week who said, in a lot of these churches that are experiencing these declines, I mean, in the ELCA, it's been what? We're down a third over the last decade. Uh, he said, fear is in the water. He goes, you go into these, especially the smaller churches, fear is in the water because they're right on the edge of critical mass. They just won't be able to go on anymore. Churches that a lot of these people for decades and decades, much of a, often a lifetime, have poured their lives and hearts and resources into are kind of on the edge of closing and and so how do we deal and how do we operate in uh, a setting where, I mean, fear is in the water? Part of it is just coming back to what Jesus said again and again and again. Do not fear. You don't have to be afraid. Uh, do not be afraid. I mean, he would repeat that so often. And, I mean, it doesn't mean things aren't going to, you know, be bad or that things don't need to change. Things do need to change in a big way. But we're probably fearing the wrong things so great stuff andy on fear and on storms i think one of the constants in life is that we are always going to have storms and our fear is always going to be a part of our decision making and we need jesus to help us overcome our fear so well thank you for listening that has been mark chapter four 
If you have any questions about what we've said, any questions about anything else you'd like us to touch on, please email us. It's the no shortage podcast at gmail.com. No shortage podcast at gmail.com. Next week, we will be back with Mark chapter five, but we're going to have a special episode uh, coming later this week because this week is uh, the beginning of Lent. Ash Wednesday is uh, this week. And so we are going to have a special podcast just specifically around Ash Wednesday and Lent. And so we invite you to uh, listen to that and participate in Lent and whatever uh, worship uh, community you're a part of. Uh, and we will see you then. Andy, appreciate the uh, the conversation today. Hope everyone's doing well and God bless you all. Thanks, Nick.